You're listening to The Social Workers on WCDB Albany. Welcome back to The Social Workers on WCDB Albany. My name is Eric Hardiman, and I'm here with my co-host, Alyssa Lotmore. Welcome back yet again, Alyssa. Hey, Eric. Before we get into the interview, um, if you're tuning in for the first time, this is The Social Workers live radio talk show where we deal with uh, topics related to social work, social welfare, poverty, community. Uh, what else, Alyssa? Lots lots of topics. You in, name it. In, Pretty much anything. It shows anything that social workers handle every day. Yeah. And we have a very broad field. So it's, the goal of the show is to, you know, we see the public as client. And we want to reach individuals who might never have considered seeing or using a social worker and letting them know about resources and services and just research and what's going on in the social work profession and how we might be able to be of service or help. And also, it's important to us to think of our audience as not being just social workers. So if you're tuning in and you're thinking, I'm not a social worker, maybe this maybe this uh, show is not for me, please stick around and listen. And we, we think you'll find the stuff we talk about important, even if you're not a social worker. Yeah. So, and, uh, and if you can't listen live now or you want to listen to one of our segments again, we are on podcast. You can find us on iTunes. Uh, the Social Workers Radio Talk Show, or uh, we have a website, the Social Workers Radio Talk Show dot FM, where you can download our episodes as well. We are on uh, Facebook and Twitter uh, with our handle Social Workers FM. And if you just Google the Social Workers Radio Talk Show, you will find us. All, all of these social media sites pop up. I've tried it. Um, and on on the podcast page, archived interviews from going back for quite some yeah. time. So if you remember hearing an episode or if you want to find out about a different topic, uh, you're welcome to go listen to those old episodes. We always love that. We've had the show quite a while. so And you can excited. download for future listening when you're offline as well, too. Lots of exciting stuff. So with us here in the studio on The Social Workers today, we have Mary Mahler. Mary comes to us from the Center of Excellence for Alzheimer's Disease at Albany Med and has worked in the community for over 16 years, assisting families and caregivers as they try to balance many of the demands that are placed upon them. She is also an author of a new book, which is entitled Alzheimer's Through the Stages, A Caregiver's Guide. As a graduate from the U Albany School of Social Welfare with an MSW, Mary has now returned to the school as an adjunct professor and is also pursuing a PhD degree from our school. Mary has also earned a graduate certificate of advanced study in health and wellness. In addition to her vast experience in aging and community-based social work, Mary has presented at many conferences addressing caregiver health and wellness, compassion fatigue, caregiver burnout, and she speaks to the importance of prioritizing care for the caregiver. So lots to talk about there. But first of all, welcome to The Social Workers, Mary. Hi, thanks for having me today. Absolutely. Thanks for being here. No, we're so excited. And I was thrilled to see your new book uh, that's about caregivers and how it relates to Alzheimer's. When I first met you, you were actually my VSW supervisor when I was at Catholic Charities Caregiver Support Services. And you had such a passion for caregivers. I'm so glad that you still are focused on this field and now have uh, written a book. Thank you. Um, about it. So Thank congratulations you. on the new publication. Thank you very much. It is um, a passion because uh, I think very often caregivers are really unsung heroes. 
So tell us about about so when you when we hear the word caregivers for our listeners, who is a caregiver? You know, what what do we mean by that term, and why does that term matter? Well, it's a great question because caregiver really encompasses those who are just taking care of someone else, and it's really across the lifespan. My particular area of um, passion is uh, older adults with memory loss. So whether it's Alzheimer's disease or um, something like mild cognitive impairment. So this is really the specifics of caregiving in this particular realm. Um, And the important thing about caregivers is that very often they don't identify. They go, it's just my spouse. It's my partner. It's my child. So it's interesting we start with that question of what's a caregiver and why is it so important. Um, Very often if it's a couple they've been married for 50 years, they go, I'm not a caregiver. I'm taking care of of my favorite person in the whole wide world. Um, But I do like people to, when they do identify as a caregiver, to really understand that there, there are a lot of responsibilities associated with that. And what are, as we start to talk about, what are some of the things that would make somebody a caregiver and the stresses that come along with this? What is the impact of being a caregiver and having that role? It's a good question. Uh, Caregivers, um, very often, they put their own needs aside because they're so busy taking care of their loved one. Mm. And that is really the number one priority. Um, It's they postpone their their appointments. And when I go to conferences for caregivers, I'll say, who here has postponed a medical appointment? And inevitably, half the audience raises their hand. So things like that. And that's why it's so important. And also, particularly with an older adult with memory loss, as the disease progresses, the caregiver has to do more and more. So it increases the demands placed upon them. They have an increased amount of responsibility. And I think what's most often not spoken about is that they have to make decisions for their loved one. And Mm. it's very stressful. And I would imagine that most caregivers did not plan to be caregivers. So this was not a conscious choice that maybe they stepped into and, and received training to be caregivers, but they oftentimes become caregivers by default because of life experience. Exactly, exactly. So if someone's experiencing memory loss, um, it it takes years and years and years to develop. Um, So Alzheimer's disease, the typical person with Alzheimer's disease, it lasts between eight and 12 years. But very often, the first stage, people miss. And by the time they come to our clinic at Albany Med, they go, hmm, I think this had been going on for several years. And throughout those early few years, the caregiver is already doing more and more. And they go, oh, my, I have been a caregiver for a while. And it's interesting, in the news recently, Dr. Oz missed the mild stage of his mother's diagnosis. So if Dr. Oz misses the first stage, it's, it happens all the time. Right. And then here they are now in the moderate stage, well, wherever they are on the, the trajectory of the disease. And they go, I'm really responsible for this person now. They can no longer help pay the bills. They can no longer cook. And so that, it, it, it usually evolves over time unless there is um, more of an acute episode. And that's a little different. So, so if this early recognition of the early stages of the disease is so important, how, how can people in the community and potentially listeners that are thinking about their own families and loved ones, what are some of the signs that maybe they should be looking for? Great question. So memory loss, when it starts to interfere with their normal routines, And so very often early on in the disease, people can compensate. So, for example, they get lost driving, but they can find their way home. As time progresses, they get lost, and they can no longer find their way home. So any kind of behavior that they used to be able to accomplish, and now they no longer can. 
So for example, if there's a favorite family recipe and the person with is experiencing memory loss, I was gonna say person with the disease, but maybe not yet. Mm-hmm. So the person with memory loss has made this recipe for 55 years and they make it and they start forgetting ingredients or they forget to put the item in the oven or things like that, things that um, people have done their whole lives, they're starting to have difficulty doing. And that's when the family needs to start paying attention and say, hmm, maybe we need to talk to our our doctor about that. So how do you, so the diagnosis is really important. Mm -hmm. And does something happen, like once that diagnosis happens, what is the, I don't want to say the benefits of knowing that this is what it is, but for a caregiver or even for the person going through this, is it helpful to have sort of a name to what's going on and to understand, are there more services available? What is sort of a benefit of getting that official diagnosis of like something is wrong? Such a great question. And we get this all the time because uh, we're a center of excellence for Alzheimer's disease at Albany Med. We absolutely stress the importance of getting a diagnosis. There are many different types of um, dementia. So dementia is a broad category. So we call that an umbrella term for memory loss and functional impairment and, and difficulty thinking and processing and judgment. So the most common type of dementia is Alzheimer's disease. Approximately 60 to 80% of all people with dementia have Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. There's also other types that are atypical dementias. So for example, frontotemporal dementia, that's where people we see it's generally younger onset and it affects behaviors and judgment. There's also dementia with Lewy bodies and those are people that have hallucinations. So it really is important to identify what type of dementia someone has. And therefore, the family can then start to put a plan in place to help take care of their loved one. Because a lot of times it's people early on only need a little bit of help. And then again, as the disease progresses, the need for care rises. So with their ADLs or their IADLs, um, they're gonna need more help along the way. And when someone gets a, a diagnosis, we can help plan for that and also help with advanced directives too very early on while the person still has the ability to say, I want to have my wife as my POA or my partner, my oldest child as a POA or power of attorney, um, healthcare proxy, things like that. So that's also why we want to get people in um, as early as possible. Mm-hmm. The other thing we do, it's also important if someone is experiencing memory loss, there's other, sometimes there's conditions that it's not dementia, which is always interesting because people will see people in the community, they'll say, oh, I need to get a diagnosis, something's happening. So check with your primary care first and then come see us or or come see another neurologist um, in a clinic that can help with the diagnosis because they can rule other causes out. So how do they, once a diagnosis is made, how do they, how do you navigate the course of this disease? Is there certain things that, how do you go through the whole process or to explain to somebody what's going to happen next or how do you prepare? Okay, so that's a great question again. Uh, depending on what stage, if it's Alzheimer's disease, we generally classify it as mild, moderate, and severe. So if someone comes in the uh, mild stage, again, we can plan um, what kind of activities that might be helpful to keep the person person engaged. Exercise right now is really the number one activity that persons with the disease can do to perhaps slow the progression of the disease. Hmm. Um, uh, Everyone that comes through our clinic gets a prescription for exercise 
30 minutes, about five times a week. All, all of us on the staff try to do it. Um, so we live it, we breathe it, we believe in it. And if someone comes in in the moderate stage, for example, by now there might, they might be exhibiting some very difficult behaviors. So they're getting very agitated or they're getting very depressed. And then medication can be very helpful. Or someone may be hypersexual and, or they have very bad judgment. So then we can surround services uh, to help the family navigate it. And when we say help the family, we call it caregiver um, education. So caregiver training and education, so to speak. So we'll do everything we can to help the family to kind of navigate where to go, what to do. And locally, actually across the country, the Alzheimer's Association is really a wonderful resource for families to turn to. And in New York State, there's a caregiver support initiative, which is a really fantastic program that's really um, offered uh, equally throughout the state. Mm-hmm. So caregiving, um, the, the idea of caregiver burden, you know, the, the sort of challenges that caregivers go through, um, I, I would imagine, this is not my area of specialty, but I would imagine that it, it, it varies according to family configuration, it varies according to the stage of the illness, um, but can be all-encompassing sometimes, that burden, that, that sometimes caregiving is a 24-7 thing. And as you said, people might miss their own medical appointments or they might put their own needs aside because caregiving is um, so all-encompassing. So um, if I could find a question in my, uh, in my words here, uh, can you talk a little bit about caregiver burden and sort of what, what caregivers, what some of the challenges that caregivers face are? Sure. Um, it's interesting you say that because when, when you were talking, I was thinking about family dynamics and how that plays such a powerful role when determining kind of a care plan. Um, and so we also do, we, we try to incorporate the caregiver as part of the care plan so they do have some self-care. So, for example, if there is uh, a member of the family who may be taking advantage of the older adult and every time they come to visit, ooh, can you sign, write this check? And they give this, this one money. And then the other, meanwhile, the other family members going, stop giving them money, stop taking them money. So things like that. Mm-hmm. So there could be family dynamics, which place a tremendous burden on the primary caregiver. And then also, so it's the stress. And also there's a lot of grief and loss when you're watching your loved one kind of slip away over many, many years. And it creates a lot of stress and anxiety um, and sometimes depression for caregivers to watch their loved one fade away before their eyes over the course of many years. And eventually, towards the end stage, the severe stage, the person with the disease may no longer recognize their beloved partner and how challenging that is. And very often families don't understand why dad doesn't know who I am or mom doesn't know who I am or mom calls me her mother's name. So that that really is very challenging for caregivers to to witness and, and to endure. And again, circling back to when they have to make difficult decisions and the person with the disease gets upset with them. That's a tough one. So for example, when driving becomes an issue and the primary caregiver has to take the keys away or disable the car, how hard that is. And so what we recommend is that you turn to your doctor and have them kind of be be the person to take away the keys and not a family member. Interesting. So that, it, and if, if someone can no longer um, cook and you disable the stove, things like that, and that person's angry, the person with the disease is upset, and the caregiver has to kind of reconcile all that within themselves, that is one of really the, I think, the unspoken challenges that if you're not a caregiver, 
You may not understand what that person is going through when they have to kind of take power away from someone who always was the matriarch or the patriarch of the family and how, how difficult that is and how stressful it is. And with that leads us to the caregiver burnout with a lot of guilt associated with that because mm. I should let dad make more decisions or I should let my wife cook. But it's about safety. When safety becomes a factor, then the caregiver must step up and make those mm-hmm. difficult decisions. So it's caregiver burnout could be, could be physical. If they're driving more, they're lifting, doing more laundry, they're um, taking the trash out, doing things they've never done before. So it could be physical. And, of course, um, psychologically, the grief and loss. And it's just, it's very, very stressful. And then if they get injured along the way, too, that complicates the whole process. Well, is there a level of, like, sometimes when we were talking about self-care and the importance of it, I mean, it seems like a no-brainer, but it's it's a lot to have to leave if you... If the person needs you, what happens if they fall? What happens if something happens? What happens if they get upset when you leave? And it must feel like a level of like guilt, even though there shouldn't be guilt. But for a caregiver to have to sometimes leave and do their own, you know, doctor's appointments or something for self care, was they need some space. And if that per the person they're caring for is getting upset, or they're worried that they could get hurt if they leave, or who's going to, you know be with them when they're there and maybe they don't like that person as much because they don't you know there's a lot that must be going on for a caregiver when they're even just making decisions to go out of the house or to leave that person for a little bit how do they what are strategies to to handle that excellent that's exactly what happens so someone at the moderate stage of the disease towards the end of it very often they they follow their loved one around they're the, the caregiver around all day every day they're very much attached to that person and when that caregiver leaves, the person feels abandoned. They go, oh, where you can't go, you can't leave me, things like that. So the, so the caregiver, this is where self-care really becomes such a challenge. They feel horrible that they have to leave their loved one. And the person that they hire or the family member that comes to stay, they don't want them there. They say, get out. I want the primary caregiver. This is where the caregiver has to make those difficult decisions and walk out the door and take care of themselves. Mm. Alzheimer's Association says about 18% of all caregivers pass away before the person with the disease. Wow. It's very, very, uh, really, truly negatively impacts their health. And how do they? They have to be brave Mm -hmm. and really recognize that they must take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. If I had a magic wand, I wish people would just say, I need to take care of myself and I'm going to do it. They have to make a decision and recognize it's paramount. It's absolutely paramount that they keep themselves healthy and well. Mm-hmm. And it really it prolongs the amount of time that the person with the disease may be able to stay home. So when the caregiver invests in themselves, you know, a healthy caregiver is a better caregiver. And since 2006, I've been saying when caregivers take care of themselves, they're better able to take care of their loved one. Yeah. So your book, if you've just tuned in, we're talking with Mary Mahler, who comes to us from the Center for Center of Excellence for Alzheimer's Disease at Albany Med. And your book is entitled Alzheimer's Through the Stages, A Caregiver's Guide. And it also says on the cover, it says what to expect, what to say and what to do. And I take from that that your book is a really pragmatic one, that it's uh, it's aimed toward caregivers themselves to really give them some concrete ideas around uh, how to handle these challenges and what what to say in certain situations, just like you've uh, talked to us about these uh, challenges that arise. But what's the importance of the book being so pragmatic? 
Well, thank you. It is very, very practical. It's not a lot of fluff. It gets right to the point. So in every chapter is really um, designed the same way. So every chapter has, the mod- say, for example, the moderate stage. And in the moderate stage, it's what to expect, what to say, and what to do. So what to expect in the moderate stage, we talk about, or I talk about difficult behaviors again, or someone losing interest in things that they always used to love doing, and how the caregiver can react to that. And I mean, literally, what can you say in a situation like that and what to do? So, for example, if someone um, was a volunteer firefighter and they loved, they were a volunteer firefighter for 55 years. This just happened in a case. And they no longer, dad no longer cares to go, or mom, but in this case it was the dad, no longer uh, cared to go to the firehouse anymore. So one of the daughters said, come on, dad, let's go down to the firehouse. Let's just go take a look at the trucks. And he, no. No, because he was having difficulty talking and processing. And, and, and I think, too, this father recognized that he could no longer participate in the activities. Mm-hmm. So the daughter said, well, let's, just go, let's go get some ice cream, and maybe we'll take a drive by the firehouse. He was up for ice cream, so they went for a drive, and they went out for ice cream, and they drove through the um, fire department parking lot, and the dad smiled. And they both smiled, and they said, look at the new truck. It's got a... Um, Hook and ladder. I forget what it's called. The one, the, the really tall one that goes way up. It was a brand new truck. And uh, the dad smiled and they laughed. So things like that. And they just went on home. So it's really joining the person in that moment. And there's also one of my, um, another part in this book that's really helpful is what to ask the doctor. So how to prepare for your doctor's appointments. Because it's really valuable time. Because the doctor can help you, or help the caregivers navigate kind of what to expect. And so, for example, if someone does become agitated, say, for example, they have sundowners, which is towards the end of the day, they get, our doctors say they kind of run out of gas. So they get kind of tired and agitated. So there's strategies. So you minimize the lights. You turn the TV off. Keep the room kind of quiet as you prepare dinner for the loved one. Uh, Things like that. It's very, very, very practical. And that's actually some of my favorite feedback on the book. It's so practical. And it's meant to be used over time yeah so i was going to ask you you mentioned feedback what what has the response been to the book it is so practical and it's helpful and the other part of the book which is really really my favorite part yes it's practical and gives tips but half the book is really dedicated to caregiver self-care and it gives examples and what someone can do in in five minutes um sometimes we we say just go in the bathroom close the door take some deep breaths or put on some music and dance i mean just some basic tips at the end of every chapter, there's kind of an inspirational, motivational quote. Um, so it's just really about, as, as important as it is to have disease education, it's equally important for the caregiver to recognize that they must take care of themselves and to give themselves permission. If I can say one more thing about that with caregivers, how difficult it is to ask for help. So someone will say, well, okay, I need help cooking. I need someone help um, taking care of the lawn. And then when someone says, I'll help pay for that or I'll come over and the caregiver says, oh, no, 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 I don't want you to do that. You know, so asking for help, but accepting help is Mm -hmm. really, really challenging. And so that's really one of the keys that's in here a lot, too, about accepting help. And uh, it takes a village at this point. It very rarely actually does not happen where one person can be can do it all, everything themselves. Mm -hmm. So what can individuals do 
if we're thinking about memory loss, what can we do to reduce the risks of developing memory loss? That's my favorite question in the whole wide world. So uh, number one is exercise. All of us need to exercise. We all need to eat healthy food, uh, not packaged processed foods. So really um, lots of greens and vegetables and sleep. Um, Our doctors really, really talk about the importance of sleep. And um, when you sleep and you get in the deep sleep, your brain cleanses itself. So there's a physician, uh, Dr. Daniel Amen, who I read a lot of his books. He's on the West Coast. And he says, when you get into, into the deep sleep, a cleaning crew comes out and scrubs the toxins from your brain. So getting good sleep is really important. And in fact, my dad does not have memory loss, but he has difficulty sleeping. He's 90. And a year ago, he learned how to use a CPAP machine. So again, it's not memory loss, but now that his sleep has improved, he he is functioning so much better. Because I thought, oh no, maybe my dad's getting some memory loss. But he needed hearing aids. We got him hearing aids and a CPAP machine. He's a whole new man. He's 90. So anyway, good sleep, exercise, good nutrition. For those uh, people listening, they have a chronic illness, chronic disease, such as diabetes, particularly type 2 diabetes. It's very important to manage that. Um, uncontrolled diabetes is a very strong risk factor uh, for Alzheimer's disease. Um, ongoing learning, so um, exercising physically but also mentally. So get out with people, um, socialize, laugh, do crossword puzzles, and so on and so forth. So it's constant learning. So eating and dieting, uh, good food, and then sleep, manage chronic illnesses, manage stress. We all have stress, so kind of managing i'm quoting maybe the quotes managing stress <laughs> in healthy ways is really um is really going to help and it's going to protect the brain there's a lot of things that lifestyle habits that are protective factors for the brain it's interesting in the in the medical field and you're at albany med uh you know it seems like more and more i've noticed over the past say 20 to 30 years that uh patient education and community education is really really important that that making sure that people know uh, have the right information at their fingertips and that health in large part is about knowing what to do in certain situations and knowing how to prevent things and knowing how to take care of oneself. So I, I hear in your work a lot of education and a lot of, and certainly in the book, you know, around helping caregivers know what to expect and what to do. And we're running out of time, but I do want to, we've talked a lot about, you know, Alzheimer's and caregivers and things that we can do, but how can we enjoy the journey, I guess? How can, it's a lot of things, it's over, can be overwhelming, stressful, a lot going on, but what can we do to enjoy the ride if this is sort of, if this is sort of life now? Good question. So my dear colleagues at the Alzheimer's Association, they say Alzheimer's, it's a marathon, not a sprint, which really is a perfect analogy. So when you're on this marathon, or I use the word journey, there's lots of ups and downs. So you wanna really meet the person where they're at. So if you're the person with the disease insists on wearing two different colored socks, you laugh and say, oh, that's okay. You've got another pair at home, just like them. You kind of just go with the flow. You meet them where they're at and you find the moments of joy where you can. So sometimes you have to set that up a little bit. If you know ice cream works, you have ice cream. If you know music really is really a a science proven uh, strategy to really uh, engage those long-term memories of the brain. Uh, so music is a wonderful, wonderful way to connect with the loved one. 
um, sights and scents, so all, the, all those sensory activities that you can engage in with a loved one. And really, it's about laughing and finding joy wherever you can along the way. And it looks different now. We also say it's a new norm. You know, it's a new normal. It sounds kind of a cliche term, but it is. So you have to find those little moments when you can laugh and you can make eye contact and find that, that, that precious person that's inside that brain still because there's still this loved one. There's still a person who had a great life. They were yeah. employees, employers, partners, lovers, all of that. So you want to find those moments where you can catch a little glimpse of that. And that's really where caregivers find a lot of satisfaction. This is great. We've been talking with Mary Muller from the Center of Excellence for Alzheimer's Disease at Albany Med and also an alum of the uh, UAlbany School of Social Welfare and currently um, pursuing a doctorate degree there as well. So thank you very much, Mary. We've really enjoyed the conversation. We appreciate you coming on and sharing your expertise with us. Thank you for the opportunity. How can listeners find out about your book? We want to make sure to add, to uh, offer that information as well. Yes, it's on Amazon, Audible, and Kindle. Okay. It's available. And, and again, the, the, uh, this is Mary Mahler, M-O-L-L-E-R. And so if you want to Google uh, her book that way, it's called Alzheimer's Through the Stages, A Caregiver's Guide. So thank you so much. And again, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to The Social Workers here on WCDB Albany. We will return in uh, future weeks. We'll be back next week possibly with some archived interviews, I believe. And then we'll be back with live guests soon enough. And uh, one more time, Alyssa, how can uh, listeners find our social media presence? Uh, uh, Twitter and Facebook. We're uh, at Social Workers FM. And that has the link to our website and where you can find our podcast. We're also on iTunes as well. So the Social Workers Radio Talk Show. Stick around for music on WCDB Albany. You're listening to The Social Workers on WCDB Albany.